0: Welcome to another edition of Children of Song, the podcast that explores what it must have been like to grow up surrounded by music. For those of you listening for the first time, we are speaking with artists whose parents made it big in the music or entertainment industry, or in today's case, someone who made it big herself as a young girl on the big stage of Broadway. She starred in a show that captured the hearts of little girls across the country when it opened on Broadway in 1977, captured a little, a few boys too, I'm sure, I was one of them. Uh, we're talking, of course, about the musical Annie, a show that became a cultural phenomenon before Broadway shows were doing that, or after Broadway shows were doing that. Our guest had everything to do with that. We'll meet her in a moment, but first, I'm Charles Isherwood. We're calling these episodes our Broadway Sessions, and I'll be your host for this journey along the Great White Way. I'm joined by my producer, Brad Newman.
1: Hello, Brad. Hey, Charles, how are you? I'm good today. You know, I gotta tell you, this whole day uh, reminds me, it really does bring me back because when I was a kid growing up in Ohio, as you know, um, my mother, she she was a single teacher and she really wanted to give me this sort of New York experience. And I remember we came up for a weekend And we flew into LaGuardia, and here's this—I mean, I grew up in a very, very, very small town, and I was just wowed by this city. And the first thing we did that first night was go see Annie. And it just so happened—I saw Allison Smith in the show, but we happened to be sitting next to this woman. And, of course, we're Midwesterners, so, you know, my mom just strikes up a conversation. And, um, you know, this woman talks back, and it just happens to be that she's a mother of one of the orphans in the show. (laughs) And after the show, you know, she said, you know, come back tomorrow and I'll take you backstage and you can meet the girls. And I was like, OK. I mean, And uh, it was really it was a really amazing experience. So this, you know, I know it's going to take our guests back a little bit, but it takes me back. And it does hearken back to a different time of New York City, really. Oh, of course. New York has changed exponentially, as I'm sure we all know. Uh,
0: thank you, Brad. You're here to help me out and keep me. On the straight and narrow, shall we say? Rick Buser is our engineer today, and we are bringing this to you from our podcast studios in Midtown Manhattan, just steps away from the heart of the theater district here in New York City. Um, we're joined by a woman who took this town by storm in the late '70s, uh, when Annie first came to Broadway, with her hugely distinct voice, which have, with a classic belt, she brought a feisty warmth to the title role. Um, It was a critically acclaimed performance, of course. She became the youngest performer ever to be nominated for a Tony in the Best Actress in a Musical category. Um, I think that's never been bested, I'm sure. Still running. Yeah. Almost 40 years. Possibly forever. (laughs) Um, Whether it's fair or not, she became the Annie that everyone has been compared to since which is uh, tough on them, maybe tough on you <laughs> Um She went on to play several roles on Broadway, many, in fact, and in regional theaters all over the place and many diverse roles. Uh, she also has a cabaret act, which has gotten phenomenal reviews when she does it here in New York City and I'm sure elsewhere. So without further ado, please welcome the original Annie, Andrea McCardle, to the podcast. Welcome, Andrea.
2: Thanks for having me.
0: Well, we're very happy you're here. I did say original, um, because you opened the show on Broadway, um, which was quite a thing. But there's a little fascinating backstory to that.
2: Yeah, there is. Um, at the time, I was um, I was barely in the business, and I got very lucky very soon. I um, had about 30 commercials under my belt, and I got a contract role. On search for tomorrow on CBS and I had zero experience but I happened to look just like the mother who was the villainous so um, they kept waiting for me to mature so I could have a boyfriend and it just didn't happen and I used to be very upset about it turns out that would be the blessing that made me 13 and able to to play Annie I was abnormally small short and um, and Really, I think what happens today is they have to take kids who are younger because kids are bigger.
1: But that show in Connecticut, where it was in pre-Broadway tryouts, yes. you initially were supposed to play one of the orphans.
2: Yes, I found out since that on my lunch break, um, my mom and I, my mom saw an ad in in the trade papers that said we're looking for kids for this musical, Little Orphan Annie, and so. We we were walking. We were right at 57th Street. We went to Broadway Arts on 54th and Broadway. Walked in, and turns out I was the first kid they ever saw for the show. Oh wow! And I've since found out that I was the first kid hired, but I was not hired to play Annie. I was hired as at that time the toughest orphan, and um, I always was like a you know a little ruffian, gymnast, and um, you know quite a tomboy. So um, so what happened was we got up there and. You know, Annie was the last show that had no body mics. We had no body mics. We mm. had th- three three mics at the foot of the stage, which is why you'll see all of her numbers front, center. <laughs> yes. And, um, you know, the art of projection is not, I mean, many, many... New kids and, and they don't they don't know how to project. So they I get so excited to. when my no. microphone goes out and I go, well, "Let me show you how it's done." Yeah. <laughs>
1: you know what's interesting there because uh, you know and we had that we were going to get into it later about this this stuff about mics, but it is true. There are all these crutches now where the kids everybody has the mic and you wonder sometimes in smaller houses do you really need it? I mean I remember it's a hard knock life and I
2: w- we, we sat deafening. It was deafening. It was
1: deafening. I was three rows from the back and I remember looking. To my mother, and there were seven girls. I was like, "This is amazing!" It was almost like a punk rock concert. Those girls were so it loud. It was,
2: yeah, it, it it was. And I mean, that that was my that was the most fun number to do in the show, mm. bar none. It, yeah, it's an Hands explosive down.
0: moment, and every, it's such a and it's powerful, song and it, it's too.
2: girls, it's power, and it's camaraderie and sisterhood, and you know, it was, it was, it never got anything less than you know
1: well and it does give it the edge too because you know when you see a lot of the marketing for Annie you see the wig and she's such a nice girl and with a rich father and it really does bring the edge and you get to see that these are orphans and this is a tough life and they they are going without and I think from an audience standpoint it's that you need that to get to the other side. yeah they had
2: nothing but you know one of her famous lines is you know you got to have a dream and, and that that's like her mantra, her motto, and, and um, you know, just incredibly sunny on the inside. And she couldn't be broken, which is, you know, it, it's cool. I mean, it's fun to play. And, um, <laughs> but I was not um, hired for Annie. And we got up there, and then Frank Rich came up and I think killed the show. Um, it was very political, the review. And the show really had a lot more political undertones in it. Um, I
0: know the original version yes and, um, yes
2: i mean we would have 17 or 30 pages of rewrites in in a day phew. yeah and um
0: good thing you were young and the brain exactly, is always that's working exactly
2: i mean we knew everybody's part and that's kind of how they heard me sing alone because we were playing you know in the crawl space um at, at the good speed which is tiny mm-hmm. by the orchestra pit and the kids were like, okay, you do Hannigan this time, you do Daddy Warbucks, and you do Annie. And we would switch around, and we knew everybody's parts. Like, if they took too long with the beat, we'd say, oh, you're supposed to say... I mean, totally annoying. <laughs> but um, they heard me singing down there, and all of a sudden, um, Martin Charnon was dating Mary Travers of Peter, Paul, Peter, Paul and Mary. Uh-huh. And she heard me sing, and she was like, this kid's got this crazy voice, it, you know? And then Mike Nichols kind of came in by accident with Diane Sawyer on the way back to the city. And I'm not quite sure how it happened because I was so young. And you know what? I've never really asked because it, you know, it was a golden moment. And um, and I'm very good friends with the beautiful girl, Kristen Beigard, who became mm-hmm. a big soap star. She did some back rack stuff and did Ileana Douglas's voice and Grace of My Heart. and And she's just, I mean... We all wanted to sound like her. She had a very different voice. She ended up doing uh, Frank Mills and Hair right after that, so you can tell how different we were. But she she ended up coming back and understudied me on Broadway, yes. and she was tremendously talented, very winsome and beautiful, everything I wasn't. And so, you know, they <laughs> beautiful just you in being were. <laughs> in being the toughest orphan, which is where they said, "That's Annie right there. That's it." And so it was just you know. Like, a happy accident.
0: Nice. And was it hard for you, too? I mean, you, you're young girls in this show. Um, friendly, I'm sure. But suddenly there's this sense of rivalry. Was it Was, was it an emotional a, no, thing? No.
2: There was... I mean, I can only see it, you know, from my perspective. No. But there really, there really wasn't. Um, you know... You're so lucky to have kids around you when you're working with a bunch of adults and you're young. To have a posse like that is, um, you know, it's like a constant slumber party. You know, I mean, it, it really is <laughs> a fantasy world. And we're still close. We're about to uh, have our 40th anniversary.
0: Were you meaning the orphans from the original show?
2: Yes, or Annie. Or various Annie's?
0: Yeah. Annie,
1: Wow. It's wow. going to be
2: forty years old, um, April twenty
1: first. And so you you have kind of been sort of the the mother of this whole this whole exchange, haven't you? I mean, whether you wanted to or not, you've been. Uh,
2: yeah, I mean, I just think I I had such an uh, eclectic background with music. My parents were music freaks. My mom more into. Burt Backrack and Cleo Lane and that kind of stuff and, and Broadway and my dad was into jazz and Gilbert and Sullivan and all so I you know we used to have LPs and two stereos before I remember having a TV so that came from my parents you know and And um, we didn't have a lot of money, but I remember being the only kids, my brother and myself, at the Latin Casino seeing uh, Sammy Davis and Frank Sinatra, like right at the end of the heyday of of the clubs.
1: So when did you know, because obviously the show was a little bit in turmoil, they put you in the show, and it was only like a week and a half before it came to New York, I think. When did you know you had something special here?
2: Um, When you're in it, it's very difficult to see. I mean, you just have to be in the moment, and that's why kids... That's why it's so easy when you're a child, and doesn't necessarily transfer when you when you get older. Because, you know, kids are fearless, um, and when if you do anything when you're young that scares you, you're like through it already. It's like mm-hmm. you know, it's like a it's like a no- notch on your belt or you know armor of sorts. And so, it was nothing was ever hard for any mm-hmm. of us, and and we went to school. I chose to go to school because I, I didn't do well with you know one on one, and you know I I just. Going like that was was perfect for me. I started in TV, and once I did theater, I said, wow. You know, TV is hurry up and wait. And with theater, you're shot out of a cannon, which I much prefer. (laughs)
0: Well, and as a kid, you don't have the, you think the future is limitless? So it's not like this job is.
2: You don't even think of the future. That's why you are in the moment, which yeah. is the hardest thing for an actor to do, especially eight times a week. Let alone right. you know, filming a movie or or a scene. So, you know, and I also remember um, saying to Dorothy Loudon backstage, kind of like maybe maybe eight months into it, I said, "You know what? I'm going to have to leave soon because I peaked and and it's 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 a little stale. Um, it's not as fresh." And she was taken aback because we got along like, uh, you know, we were thick as thieves. She didn't really like children, but she was like, you're not a kid.
1: <laughs> <laughs> an old soul.
2: Yeah, yeah.
1: She yeah. actually said some some funny things to you, right, though? Because, I mean, you are a kid, and she's an old Broadway legend. I mean, what did she but say she to you? She had
2: been amazing in many, many flops. I mean, she really couldn't get traction. Yet she was such a sentimental favorite. And just... The talent is so immense. I mean, she was so wickedly talented that I just—I wish more of the world saw, you know, a lot more of it. And um, and I loved her dearly, and um, I learned so much from her. I mean, she could talk to me like she'd say, "If you move one more time when I'm saying something funny," she goes, "We are changing the locks on the Alvin Theater," <laughs> and I and I got it. I got it. If she would squeeze me too hard, I had orphan steel-toe boots, and she had deer foams on, and I would just kind of get just step on the foot a little bit and it was unspoken
1: did you did you learn also being around a pro like that because the timing is everything and you can almost feel that if even if the joke is just a finger going up that the finger goes up at the same time every night and and it pops the audience will
2: pop she was she was on another level and she could change she changed it was never exactly the same and so me in seeing that when you're like a sponge is the way that I prefer to to approach a role and so when people are method actors, you know, welcome to your nightmare. Mm-hmm. Me, <laughs> you know, and 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 Reed Shelton, uh, the lovely Reed Shelton and he he was a method actor. So you know, I kind of drove him a little crazy, a little bit. Oh, so yeah. the, the the
1: blocking would change from night to night. No, no, your crew. no blocking, no. But
2: I mean, <laughs> just you know, to keep it fresh, you do have to, you know. I I realized like halfway through the show, like maybe. Ten months into the show, I finally got the joke about the Duesenberg on the wall. Mm. And and I was on stage and, you know, supposed to be a professional. And I could not stop laughing. I couldn't make a fist. I was so weak. I was hysterical. And so written up to equity, you know, notes with the stage manager. But but it, it, it was, you know, New York in the 70s, it was perfectly filthy, dirty, and... New Yorkers policed themselves.
0: All that fun.
2: Yeah, and, I mean, you know, it's so hard to see it all cleaned up, and 42nd Street, you know, is is like, um, you know, the Short Hills Mall now or something. (laughs) If that. Yeah, right.
0: Um, You and your parents, you know, the show hit. You were living in Philadelphia, you know, before this, and I guess you moved into the Howard Johnsons at some point. We did because,
2: you know, Mike Nichols and Lewis Allen, who presented the show, said, you're not signing, you're not signing a lease until the reviews, until the New York Times comes out. And, um, you know, even though the word was, you know, building pretty hot on the street that this was, this was it. And um, I was having a tutor at this time and I, it was in the middle of the school year and she went out to get me and my friend Janine Ruane, who was the original July, who's also a Philadelphian. And I had water balloons. We filled balloons, and I threw them out the window, which were only the kind that went back just enough to squeeze it through, and it hit the Broadway beat cop on the head. So I literally <laughs> looked down. You got it in one. <laughs> I looked down, and it's just like it is in the show, you know, with the billy club still. And all of a sudden, we hear the knock on the door, and we're hiding in the closet, and um, and they kicked us out of the hotel. So really? yeah, Even I got thrown out of the hotel. You were a
0: Broadway star. I was kind of
2: proud. We, I wasn't yet. It was, it was this was like a month away. Oh, I see. <laughs> it was pending. Uh,
0: well, he probably tells that story too. Actually, if he ever figured it out. But. Well,
2: the ironic thing is that the man who was the Broadway beat cop, his son Brian McGee, ended up being my husband's engineer. For you know, I was married for twenty three years, and so I worked in the studio all the time, uh. and uh, it. So it it is a small world. It is.
0: Things come full circle in the strangest ways, as it turns out. Another fascinating story that I've read about is that, uh, you know, you opened in the show at the height of New York's nightlife. You know, Studio 54 was going strong. There were other clubs that were, you know.
2: Regines.
0: Regines and Xenon or what I don't even know what the hell these are. I'm far too young. Yes. But um, (laughs) I'm fascinated that uh, in that day— what I've heard is that you were able—you were sort of the toast. You knew celebrities but in town, but we didn't
2: know it. So, oh. do you know what I mean? We, we, we just thought people were being nice to us. We had no idea. I mean, I was more upset about not getting to play Dorothy in the Wizard of Oz at my eighth grade school, and having to be a flying monkey. And I was like, "Well, note to self: be better next time because we're not doing that again." <laughs> <laughs>
1: Humbling, yes, yes,
2: yes. So, um, but it turns out our our bouncer our That was the first time they needed like they didn't have the barricades but we needed like security at Mm -hmm. the doors because people would just it was just like you know grand central there after the show and he he was the head bouncer at studio 54. his name was big george and he he was this beautiful man and he would say, yeah, come on over with the kids. So we'd be there with, you know, moms from Philly and Jersey in their polyester suits and, you know. Not exactly the Halston triple crowd. Knit polyester, yeah. if you will. And, <laughs> uh, you know, me with, like, wig hair and, you know, just uh, shag-nasty kids. And we, somebody just sent me pictures. One, one time it, we're doing, like, you know, the 54 thing with Michael Jackson and Bianca Jagger and Andy Warhol are, like, you know, getting crazy on the floor. And it was a school night. Wow. I cherish that. I love it, you know? No drinking, nothing unsavory, just, you know, we'd go and dance, get our energy out, and, and go home. And we would do this like two, three times a week. Wow. Yeah.
0: wish we all could have been there. No matter how old you
2: are, you still need to wind down after work. Well, well that kind of
0: work in particular, Yeah, of course.
2: Yeah, and I think what that did, I think I always was the type who would, you know, be an adrenaline junkie, but when that happened, that was so outrageous that the hardest thing is to to stop and i don't really think i've ever stopped since you know
0: hmm. i mean it's just you the way have i like it i never stopped going to 54 but
2: <laughs> not not until i was well into my 20s oh really yeah
0: well that's nice yeah you were there in the heyday everyone dreams of that oh. um
2: I mean, I was there one time when Grace Jones came in on a horse, on a white horse, and you're like, "Wow, my life is good right now." Yeah, no I'm kidding. good. Good. Too bad you don't have the social media posts from those days, but you know what? I think it's a blessing that we don't. Possibly. I, I think it's an absolute blessing because, um, I mean, I wish I were a better self marketer, but that really wasn't. That was a, a hard thing, you know, to be self marketing. It just didn't. It just wasn't around. And. Yeah. um you know, people didn't toot their own horn. That was for other people to say. I miss it.
0: Yeah, I'm sure. Today it's all about, you know, how much are you on social media, how much you are on Twitter promoting yourself. Um, was there a.
2: Which you, I'm terrible at, so. Yeah,
0: aren't we all? Um, I think, you know, I'm curious about when the moment happened. Was it opening night when suddenly you realized this show was much bigger than you'd even imagined outside of, or did it take a while?
2: It was when we opened at the when we did our Broadway tryout at the Kennedy Center, oh, yes. and the Carters were in um, in office, and they came and then sent Amy's whole school uh, a couple of times, and we went to the White House like three times. We bowled with her and played with her after school. So we're all you know our mothers made us get dressed up, and I never liked to do that. And I remember being, you know, I was like, what are we, like little Lord Fauntleroys? You know, a little <laughs> overly dressed, and some kids had berets on, and I was like, oh, I was so embarrassed. We show up, and she's in a pair of dirty overalls with ripped knees, mm. you know, hair a mess. She looked like we were supposed to look at the beginning of the show. And so I apologized to her, and I said, please let us come back like the way we really are, and we did.
0: <laughs> oh, <laughs> oh, that's sweet.
2: Yeah, but I. it was there that we knew. It was It was on fire,
0: you're at the White House. doesn't happen to a lot yeah. of 13-year-olds.
2: The sun will come out tomorrow. Bet your bottom dollar that tomorrow there'll be sun.
0: Let's talk about the this musical itself um, and a song you may be familiar with. <laughs> it's called Tomorrow, of course. It's your signature song.
2: Which was written for a scene change.
0: Yes, I remember seeing that. Like they needed to, uh, you know, fill in some time, and right. I
2: mean, those were David Mitchell's set was really groundbreaking at the time. We had this treadmill, and you know, nothing was hydraulic, and and it it ate one of Dorothy Loudon's toes, which happened the opening night in Washington. So Mm. when we went to the White House to do our performance, she was in a wheelchair. She did Little Girl's Easy Street and everything in the wheelchair. Oh wow! Yeah, so. uh,
1: but, but that the theater song, can be
2: dangerous. <laughs> oh, I've, I've broken cheek, I've fractured cheekbones, uh, 20 bones in my foot. I've, I've had many. But in 45 years, I mean, it's par for the course.
0: Right. So the song has become such an indelible song, but particularly in your renovation of it. Because um, that's what I heard ceaselessly when I was listening to a <laughs> cassette recorder. Um, and... It's an amazing interpretation for somebody that young. You had not only the breath control uh, to sustain these notes that are positively epic when you actually try to do them, which, mm-hmm. of course, everyone did who sang, who listened to the damn thing. How much was that your inspiration, the inspiration of the moment, or were you rigorously trained to sing it in this precise way i was
2: barely trained at all i mean Uh i had six dollar a week lessons on frankfort avenue in philadelphia um not the most desirable place and my singing teacher russ faith he he had he was a terrific composer in the late 50s did all of those beach blanket bingo movies and frankie avalon and all that stuff and he wrote a, a song for uh, Frank Sinatra, and he he, he had his hands in, in and in Nashville. He used to write um, anonymously, tried to get me into country music so badly. He had a vision. Clearly, I I didn't because I have I do I do without the twang. I do I do sing. I was influenced by so many different people. You know, like. Loretta Lynn. I mean, it, it, I think you just come out that way. My a lot of a lot of people in my family are very musical. Um, my parents are just are music fiends, and I was exposed to a lot of different styles. And in Philly, you know, we had the sound of Philadelphia going on right then. Of course, mm-hmm. and. Um, you know McFadden and Whitehead and uh, Philly International—all those great songs that came out of there—and that's the way I approach tomorrow. I used to get in trouble all the time for scooping into a note, and I said, "But if I sing it the other way, I said I sound like a million other people." I was like, "But I, I couldn't. I, I wasn't good enough to be able to take that direction." And, and I'm glad I didn't.
0: <laughs> yeah, because you, you know, went your own way. Even though at 13, you would be somebody who would naturally be afraid of bucking what people are telling you, but you also have confidence at that age, and you say, this is the way
1: I can do it, this is yeah, the way I, I want to do it. Yeah, I was too dumb to
2: realize that I was like, you know, it could have been like, well, then we're putting somebody else right. in. I, I, I had no clue. Well, those
1: girls that followed you couldn't always keep that note. They would take a breath. There's one where you, uh, you know, at toward the end there, where you have to keep going, and it is, it's really pretty tough. Well, it's kind of like only you can do it. I
2: was so, in, no, I mean, they, they all could do but I was so inexperienced that I didn't understand when I would hold the note beyond where the cutoff was, and they'd say, You have to cut off on six. And I said, No, 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 I'm not done yet. I have more. So I would keep going so that some of those things they wrote in, because I was so dumb, <laughs> I didn't realize. Wow.
0: Well, but it's also what made the, the version so memorable. Um, and, you know, everyone has been living with that particular version ever since.
2: I just took up my chin. What's
1: also interesting, and we talked about it a little bit, is are, are those are those mics? The fact that there weren't
2: mics on on the floor, and you could really fill the house. I, you know, we—it's the art of projection, and that is what theater was. You know, you go back to Stanislavski and Shakespeare and all of all of that. I mean, your your instrument for speaking is is very important. I mean, we sing more correctly than we speak. I mean, for me personally, and a lot of others, it's not it's not the singing. Because then you then technique you know
0: kicks in more kicks easily. Kicks in
2: and and when you're speaking, it's, it's it's a lot harder on your vocal cords, you know. That, and I had I had horrible wicked sinus trouble and allergies. I got shots all my life, you know. I was prone to bronchitis and asthma, but it gave me that little raspy, little gritty, kind of husky sound.
1: And I kind of miss that when you go to Broadway now, I'll be honest, the, this idea that you can see something and it doesn't feel so artificialized with the mics. I mean, you get used to it. Listen, I'm not knocking Broadway. It was very beautiful. hard for
2: me to transfer to that because oh. I, I would half sing and I would say, turn it down next to nothing and then I had to do it my way. I remember playing Bell on Broadway and it was so the show was so overly amplified. Mm. I have a big problem with everything being overly amplified. And we're just—it's—it's. It's, I mean, it, it's one of my pet peeves. You,
1: you lose the emotion sometimes in that. You know, you're trying to convey some emotion, and, and, you, you and
2: somebody it. else is in control. Right. Mm-hmm. When, when it when you know when when it's just you, it's it's your job.
0: Yeah, there's nobody mediating exactly. how you're relating to the audience. Exactly. How you're connecting nobody with them.
2: writing a reverb. I mean, you know. I mean, I don't. There's no room for like reverb in classic Broadway, in my opinion.
0: Agreed. Now, of course, uh, tomorrow was. You know, a high point of the show for almost everyone, and it became a song that's much recorded in different ways. Um, but I wondered if for you that was always like, "Oh, I can't wait to have my big moment with tomorrow," or if you actually responded more to other moments in the show. Did you have more fun singing?
2: I had a ball else? doing tomorrow because of of Sandy the dog, and I'm my mom and dad. we I don't remember even being two without having at least one or two dogs in our house uh, all my life up to now i have two dogs at the moment and um we got him uh, billy berloni who's now won tony awards for all the incredible work he's done every dog every animal that's used on broadway they're all rescues and sandy oh. michael price who ran the goodspeed opera house mm-hmm. gave him 20 bucks to get a dog uh at the pound and sandy and that was 25 and billy didn't have the extra five dollars and they were going to put the dog to sleep in the morning
0: Oh, my God. And
2: so he he begged them. And so, I mean, he just he literally just escaped death. And this dog was—it's so hard for me to even talk about the dog. He was just amazing. And I was the one who trained him from, you know, from the pound on. And so it took a long time. I mean, I used to have two-hour sessions with him a day. So after I left the show, um, I couldn't go back into the theater during, during the show because— that dog knew the minute i would be backstage and he walked off stage one time <laughs> yeah. he would really and literally to you like, every ah, time ah, i was on johnny carson and merv griffin and mike Douglas and all that he, billy said he would literally go up to the tv and put his paws on there i mean he he knew
1: wow yeah
2: yeah he That's... was he was they don't they broke the mold with that one and he did every show <laughs> you know kids now do like mondays and wednesdays or like tuesdays and saturdays I don't want anybody, like, I don't want to share a role, you know? Even then, I mean, it wasn't that, I mean, I was never, I was never um, motivated by, you know, the, um, the glamour or, or the notoriety. It's what I fought with most. It's the actual process mm-hmm. from the beginning, the first sing-through, the sits, pro- like, all of that. It really is the process that, that I truly love. But you
1: wanted to work. I mean, isn't that interesting? The, the kids, we we try to protect them because we we don't want them to work too hard. But back in the day, it, kids I mean, worked. if you do
2: something you like, it, it, you never consider it work, no matter how old you are. Right. So, you know,
1: being
0: out there on stage, why would you pass up that opportunity? I mean, it's like Ethel Merman. You know, that's what. And you it's did. very
2: different when when you're when you're in it. You know, um, you know, we we were, we I'm, I'm sure we were quite annoying to work with at times, because we'd be, you know, we'd say, oh, Farrah Fawcett is, is uh, third row center. And so we had this, you know, we had codes third, you know, and we would we would do the codes. And so I'm supposed to be looking at, you know, Daddy Warbucks. And I'm like, you know, looking over One to see a Henry here. Winkler, right. <laughs> oh, there's Paul McCartney. Oh, you know, I mean, we just had the craziest slew of celebrities. Jackie O came often. Um, you know, it was just, it was, it was like, you know, the thing.
0: And there's a lovely photo of uh, Barbara Streisand with her curly hair on top meeting you backstage, I presume.
2: Yes, and, yes. Uh,
0: and then she went on to record the song. And it-
2: well, that's what she had come backstage for. Ah. It's, I, I found out then it was customary that if you're going to do somebody's signature song mm. or one of their, you know, big songs, it's my only big song as of yet, but well, not over yet. Yeah, she, but, she, really you know, but she asked me permission, and I just I got hysterical giggling because I just was like the funniest really? thing in the world. I was like, why are you asking me?
0: You're Barbara Streisand. Right,
2: right. You know, I mean, all of us little girls learned with the, I'm the Greatest Star is probably like my second or third song I ever learned. Mine, too. <laughs> uh, um,
0: what's interesting is that Annie was a phenomenon at a time in terms of a Broadway show in a time where there weren't very many Today, you know, every 10 years, we still have one a Book of Mormon or uh, Hamilton is the most obvious. But Annie really was one of the pining ones. It came along at a time when Broadway was, you know, a bit precarious. You know, Times Square had declined, as you
2: Well, said. and your 13 guys who produced all of the mega hits of yesteryear were kind of a dying breed. And yeah. the camps got smaller and smaller. And they weren't funding writers, the, the state of Broadway after Annie, even, like, 82, 83, oh. was dismal. That's when they were going to tear all the theaters down. And, you know, it, it was, unfortunately for me, uh, nobody nobody wrote vehicles, you know. And I was like, well, they used to write him for Merman. They write him for Chenoweth. They write him for all these people. But I got caught in that. And and not just me. I mean, many of us who mm-hmm. who were, you know... On the rise there was nothing and so I'm I'm thankful that I was that kind of singer that you would hire me to sing with symphonies and I did a long stint with Liberace in in uh, in Vegas and and opened for Billy Crystal and Buddy Hackett I started doing that which was really crazy like when you're like 17 18 you know (laughs) because you're like what do I say to these people because you really haven't lived yet and my my mom and dad were like what do you mean? What do you say? You know, and it is—it's very hard when you haven't lived yet to handle. I could handle ten thousand, but like two hundred, very scary. Oh dear. Yeah.
0: And was that the hardest part for you—the years immediately after Annie, trying to find you no. know, your new niche? No. Or- no,
2: I le- no, I left. Um, I left the Broadway company, to open up the London production. Yes. And then when I left there, three days after I left London, I started filming the Judy Garland movie um, Rainbow, mm-hmm. which I did that whole summer. And that came out in November, and Liberace saw it and said, I want her in my show. And so I, I really didn't stop.
1: Interesting. You know, we were, we were talking about the phenomenon of, of, you know, Annie, after you leave, because you're, you're lucky in some respects, because you're the first one. And, and in some ways, the fanfare hadn't reached the show yet. Because of you, it became the fanfare, really. Mm-hmm. And then as you leave, they have these auditions and like 3,000 girls show up. Right. Let's talk about that a little bit. I mean, did you get to see some of those tryouts? And No,
2: wh- no. Um, I mean, I, I wasn't in the country, but um, no. And they had to go within the company because the kids coming up around the time we came up, they're very, very, I mean, every girl could have handled that role or another role. I just happened to be dead right on, and I was lucky to be in the right place at the right time. But there was real, real talent there. Triple Threats sang dance and acted very well and it was odd because it wasn't from experience it was just i don't I, I don't know what it was but you know these girls were all really strong and they had to go within the company and and my friend shelly bruce got got the role right after she was my successor and she didn't get to go up for the good speed run because she broke her arm and so we i remember my mom Introducing her mom to Martin and said this kid if the the show goes to Broadway you got to see her and when they saw her They loved her. She got the part of Kate and they sort of groomed her for the role
0: Hmm. It's amazing to think that um, all this talent was coming up without you know the sort of mechanistic procedures that we now have now and a lot lot came
2: from that Philly Jersey area and I have a theory about that where Philadelphians speak, it's very forward, nasal, and I had I had to work hard to get rid of my thick Philadelphia accent. As a matter of fact, somebody just sent me a CD of of one of my first performances at Goodspeed, and it sounds like I'm in you know Straight you know Fifth and Allegheny. So, yeah. Oh yeah, right, <laughs> like South Philadelphia. I was like, oh, get out! It was very thick, but there's a, there's a, there's a placement that we have in this region a lot of singers come from this area and it's the resonance it's it's the placement that I never had to think of like you know rounding it out and doing this and I realize now how many people have to do that 10 times each song hmm. but for me that wasn't you know I have trouble moving my hands I have my own things but like that they wrote for sopranos or belters back in the day hmm. now everybody needs a mix
0: yeah <laughs> yeah it's complicated yeah. Um, but we have to talk about perhaps did there ever come a time when you felt this show was shadowing you like you know this role was so associated with you that uh, you started to wonder you know do people just see me as Annie getting older or you know how do I reinvent myself and present myself in a new way did you go through any specific processes to study or get a new agent any of this
2: um, well I was with Sam Cohn for a while. Um oh, not and, bad. and then I went to Johnny Planko and William Morris and, mm-hmm. and um Risa Shapiro and Kevin Uvain. And um as a matter of fact I'm I think I w- Sarah Jessica Parker was with me and I introduced her to them. But I was very I had so much success that it when you're the only one it was it it was it was I'd never like to be recognized and, and you know, I mean I was just uncomfortable with that. As as it should be. I mean I think that would be a little off-putting to have somebody like so, you know, digging that so much. You know, I never, I never liked it. But um, I realize now that I probably did make a mistake uh, doing the song so many times. And because, unfortunately, it's just right for every charity. You know, it's it's about hope. And, and yeah. I guess somehow I got attached to that. But that really is who I am. Mm-hmm. You know?
0: You are You are Annie with that. Well, I mean uh, that hopeful spirit and the. uh, You know,
2: and Annie and Eponine, and I played Belle that way, and it ended up being very successful because it matched her, you know, her strength and determination. Why did they all have to sing like you know, like Snow White with little birds on their shoulders? I said, (laughs) if you want that, I said, I will do my best, but I'm terrible, you know. And I finally, I finally said, can I can I show you how? I would do it. So I ended up building the whole role nobody belted the role of Bell until I went in, which was very late. I thought they were calling me for Mrs. Potts. Because oh. I was thirty eight. I was I, I was I thought the ingenues like were over, you know. And it is hard because I'm I do have a tough time getting cast um, age appropriately because that is such a strong thing. It's a blessing and a curse. It's still I mean, I can't believe anybody still cares about it after forty years, but they do. Mm, it they, spawned a whole Annie and Fame spawned a whole new generation of wannabes and 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 inspired so many people. I mean, I I speak to people, Robbie Marshall said, I'm sitting here with Fergie and they were doing a Screen Actors Guild talk back after after the movie that um Chicago. Mm-hmm. And and that they all walked around wanting to sound like me and they all had that we call it the Red album. Funny. <laughs> like the White Album.
0: It's absolutely true, though, because uh, it really did become a culture-wide phenomenon that inspired so many kids because, you know, they all have dreams. Many of uh, young kids have dreams, but they don't necessarily think that, uh, you know, they're living in fantasy. But this show came out, and it was full of little girls. And
2: and there really had other other than Baby June, I mean, there really weren't many roles for girls. I mean, I used to drive my parents crazy with singing, you know, Winthrop from Music Man or, you know, yeah. and, and Dodger from Oliver. And, you know, and I was like, when are they going to write something for, you know, a girl? And my mother says, well, they will someday. And that someday was like, you know, around the corner.
0: Wow. Well, and now we have shows like Wicked. Of course, the the women in that show were somewhat older. But, you know, I can certainly see a line from Annie to Wicked in a weird way. I mean, oh, yeah. Yeah. And. Uh, I
2: mean, Adina and them, they, they were all... That's that was the one, you know, that's probably the first thing you're ever introduced to if you're wanting to go into theater. You
0: know. Absolutely. In that whole era for decades really.
2: Yeah, and I did that when we recorded that you you recorded on the Monday on your day off. And it was, you know, award season and everything. And I was going to school doing the eight shows a week and we do this on the day off. I had one I think most of those things were like one time through. That's it once. Wow. Amazing.
1: Yeah. You mean the cast album that's that's a one take Jake yep. there incredible
2: yeah and i was so tired i mean i i still despise the way i sound on the album because my throat was so ragged i mean it was so ragged really yeah i i mean i can hear that and and i was always upset about that and so that put that in my head if it's a recording i am a stickler because it's there forever and for somebody who's used to doing live it's you, you say, oh, I can't wait to go back and do that matinee. I've got to get that lousy show out of my system. I was like that then, and I'm still like that. Yeah. You know, I can't wait to get back and, and erase anything that, you know, wasn't like what what I feel it should be. With
0: the ideal that you were looking for and yeah. wanted from yourself. Yeah. Um, it's interesting. We read that you uh, came full circle with the show. At some point, you actually played Miss Hannigan, the, uh, the bibulous... A uh, woman who ran the, you know, orphanage and hated little girls. It's a great role.
2: It is a great role. And the first time I did it, I was like, "This isn't going to affect me." The minute I heard that, you know, in the beginning, and then heard somebody else being me, being, it wasn't. It wasn't an outer body experience. It just affected me so deeply that it was. I said, "I don't know if I'm going to be able to do this thing." I, I think this was a really bad idea.
1: Oh, really? And once
2: I got over, I did it in North Carolina, and it's like a 2300 seed house, big house. You know, of course, there was, you know, not a ticket to be had. And um, the Today Show came down, and so they, you know, did a PR thing about it. But I think that's a role, I actually think that's a great role for me in the future. I mean, it should be now. Dorothy was 10, 15 years younger than me. You know, I'm 53, but they don't—they don't see me as that. So.
1: Well, it's interesting it's you tough. say that because I think she's so brassy, and they wanted the kid to be brassy, and it would be interesting if you could see almost the similarities in the characters. I
2: mean, I feel a great Annie. Many of them would be right for Hannigan.
1: You know. Yeah, yeah,
0: because they're both pretty tough dames. <laughs> right, which <laughs> is why ages. I
2: wanted. So when Les Misérables came out, and um, I really all all my friends we all wanted to be Eponine. i mean i i was too immature i couldn't even think of fontaine and when they called me to to join the broadway production i i was i said please just consider me for epony he said no any post danny could do that cameron said he said I'm, I'm doing you a favor and boy did he do me a favor that changed my life i had a four-year-old daughter at the time and to be able to have that to fuel your i dreamed a dream and you know you're Fontine's death was an amazing thing Les Mis really changed my life I had never done a really serious musical that was you know that was you know everybody dies yeah.
0: <laughs> so, yeah one of those cheery musicals I had done all the you know the Brits did right
2: hey let's do it you know let's put on a show I mean Annie Get Your Gun they're playing I mean all nice and fluffy lightweight Ish.
1: And your daughter was actually in that Broadway show with you eventually, right, Alexis? She, she
2: wasn't in it with me. Oh, well, um, she never was with you. No, but she. we ended up doing it, um, it together on the road company because I begged Cameron to finally let me do Eponine once. And so <laughs> Lori Beachman, our, our original star to be, who is, I credit to a, a lot of what we all tried to sound like her. She had the craziest, most beautiful voice with, like, she could belt e flats no problem all day mm. and um she was from philadelphia as well and unfortunately she passed away young um yeah ovarian cancer and annie was our first show together first show each and we ended up her last performance was um as Fontine, me as eponine and my daughter as cosette um in philadelphia in mm. our hometown and um that was her la- that was her last show
0: that must have been yeah, we became very
2: good yeah. friends and and uh but that's why we all were trying to sound like Lori Beachman, <laughs> you know
0: well, and in the way that many people have been trying to sound <laughs> yeah, like right. you, many a little girl. um I'm curious about I, I was reading that you were also doing roles like Mama Rose. Um, you've clearly been stretching yourself into these you know, and classic, Dolly
2: and Mame
0: yes, at uh, these classic and then I
2: find out I can't get in the door. At all for a cover or, you know, to take the role over. But find out the other day that they asked Mary Lou Henner to understudy why.
0: Understudy whom?
2: Bet Midler. And I can't even get in the door. And the problem with me is that they think they know me. They have no idea. They so knew me still, 40 years ago or, you know, 20 years ago. Yeah, that's very it's still, hard. It's, it's that a,
0: shadow, I'm amazed, is. is that long because you... I, you know, if you came in here and I didn't know who you were, I would not say it's Little Orphan Annie. Right, right. Absolutely not. I hope
2: not at this point.
0: Yeah. <laughs> that would be quite. You'd be like Baby Jane. Um, but uh, which,
2: which will be a fun one to do, also. <laughs>
0: that's true, but uh, it's great that you're actually. You know, whether you're doing it on Broadway, off, you're sort of.
2: Well, I, I'm. I'm. I'm very thankful for regional because um, to keep your chops up when they're not going to give you know i'm I'm staying around for life they're going to give me these roles they're just going to make me wait a long right. time and when you're used to a disney budget or a macintosh budget you know all you have basically have to do is show up and do it be where your feet are but in regional sometimes you know i'm not one to be checking my pop, props but sometimes you're like oh i'm gonna to have to get there at 5:30 and make sure everything is <laughs> where it needs to be so it gets you kind of back to the basics which i'm not i mean I've never minded.
0: And I'm sure you actually find good pleasure in doing those sort of things, whereas you know, it keeps you humble, shall we say. So Yeah,
2: you, and I mean to be able to get a stab at a role, the next time you revisit the role, you you learn so much that um I can't wait to do MAME again, Dolly again, can't wait to do Hannigan again.
0: And at this point, you know, when you look back on uh the whole Annie experience, which is, you know, Been a whole part of your life. You know, you can't get away from it. Here we are talking about it all these years later, but we're having a great time. I am, anyway. Me too. Me too. Do do you think that, um, you know, it's something that would have changed? Had your life gone in a different direction if you had not had the good fortune to have this?
2: I think the better fortune would have been not to have had Annie because Hmm. I was already in the business, I was already doing very well, and Hmm. I have a feeling that. Had I not gotten that role, I would be a much bigger star today um, because they did want to give me a special Tony Award. You know how they give uh, Billy Elliot's and the Matildas the special Tony Award? Right, for
0: children. Yeah. And
2: what happened was you can't be the title character and be nominated in supporting. But I wasn't supporting. Really, Dorothy Loudon was the supporting yes. role. And for some reason, that really makes me – that really gets my goat That that – that was a Tony Award performance that I gave. And um, what I gave to theater is, you know, is still pertinent. I mean, it's it's still important. And um, my father said she's not a circus oddity, and you know, she'll be up against, you know, like just the way everybody else is. staunch old Irishman. <laughs> and um, and I wouldn't have wanted a special Tony Award. you know, you're you know, you're an actor in a play and you're an actress in a musical. You know, but she really should have been nominated in supporting, but they weren't. They weren't having that.
0: Yeah, it's the Tony Award politics. But
2: is. I, I, I was more concerned about meeting Barry Manilow um, and Jack Albertson. The sweet Jack Albertson saw me kind of down in the dumps at the Waldorf at the after party, and he, and he said, "Listen, we lose lots of." And it, I wasn't upset about that at all. I was so happy for Dorothy. I was, you know. 13. I was innocent. Mm-hmm. And um, and I said, I'm not upset about that. I said, I just really want to meet Barry Manilow. <laughs> and so I ended up meeting Barry Manilow. And for my 14th birthday, um, my stage manager knew his tour manager. And so he gave me um, one of Bagel, his beagle named Bagel. He gave me one of the puppies and named it P.S. because he was the runt of the litter. And so it was post-script. Oh, oh that's yeah. lovely. Yeah, so uh, so... That dog I had for 15 years, he ate seven sets of my retainers and one Thanksgiving turkey, <laughs> and
0: survived.
2: Uh, yes, yes. Wow,
0: that's one that's one trooper dog. He's a, a regular Sandy.
2: Yeah, yes, he really is. Yeah.
0: Um, one more thing, I I had a favorite story that I read about you or your experience. Um, you know, you had this trouble where you have this famous song that is always, everyone says, okay, when is she singing tomorrow? When is it happening? If it's a cabaret show or whatever. And I, I remember uh, reading that, you know, a, a star who was in a similar position, Carol Channing, once said something to you that I think is a really profound and meaningful thing. And, wow, prob- it? and probably helped you come to terms with how you I created. can't even
2: tell you what a gift she gave me. And I was very I was somewhat embarrassed by it because it was a lot it was a lot of you know to handle mm-hmm. and um and I was doing Jerry's girls it was a celebration of all of Jerry Herman's incredible music and it was Carol Channing, Leslie Uggums, and myself. And that was my first adult role, um, you know, putting on a bugle beaded dress. I mean, this was all foreign to me. Mm. And uh, we, I was standing there in rehearsals one day with the Jerry's Girls Ensemble, and they said, Wow, you must be so sick of that song. You must never want to sing it again. And I was like, Believe me, I, you know, I can't even count how many times, and yeah, I'm over it. And she heard me. And so she comes over and the way that only carol can do she was like well you know andrea you know this is very upsetting i do a terrible carol channing I know so, know. Seth I, says, that was great i love it well you know it's just awful that you're just you know embarrassed by the song and i just want to tell you what a gift it is to be given a signature song once in a lifetime Let alone when you're a child. And she goes, you know, poor Leslie. When she goes up and presents on the Tony Awards, you know, what are they going to play? And I said, (laughs) I don't know, Carol. And she goes, exactly. (laughs) (laughs) And for some reason, I got it. Like, you know, You took it to heart. And and it just made absolute sense to me. And it it changed my whole... You know, I try, I mean, I, I'm, I'm thankful, you know, I'm thankful to have known her. She taught me so much about comedy, so much about fashion. She's, she's an interested. People don't even know how, like, totally cool and really cutting edge. Um, she's, she was a fast fashionista before you, you know, before the term, the term, term was, was out. In exactly.
0: exactly. Well, it's fascinating that you've come full circle in so many ways without letting go of, you know, what you really began with. And you've also, you know, branched out endlessly so uh we are so grateful to be having you here today thanks so much Um, for having me because uh you know both of us have kind of fascinating fond memories mine was just you know listening to the tape recorder and singing every word along you're Um, lucky
2: it wasn't an eight track
0: yes exactly (laughs) (laughs) that we didn't have those in my family thank god you're lucky yeah but uh this has been a great pleasure
2: And thank you
0: so much, and good luck with everything that's coming up next. Thanks.
1: Thank you. Before we let you go, we want to welcome you to the B-Side, the producer's notes edition. Since we last sat down with Andrea, the musical Annie celebrated its 40th anniversary, where all of the Annie's and many of the orphans got together to celebrate a show that has changed their lives. And Andrea is making the rounds with a new cabaret show, aptly titled An Evening with Andrea McCardle." The show features songs from the Great American Songbook, Broadway, as well as some contemporary tracks. But most importantly, it's filled with stories about some of the legends she has shared the stage with. A must-see. Next week... We have one of the best guitarists and entertainers in his field. John Pizzarelli has made a name for himself by expanding the Great American Songbook with spectacular arrangements of modern pop artists like Tom Waits, Neil Young, and Paul McCartney. He'll join us next week on Children of Song, the podcast that combines live music with great storytelling. Till next time, I'm Brad Newman. Thanks for listening.